0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick.
1: And it's Saturday, time to go into the vault. This time we're going to be looking at part two of our uh, exploration from December of 2018 of the Ark of the Covenant myth and, uh, and some strange historical hypotheses people have had about that.
0: Yeah, in, in particular, this episode focuses mostly on the idea that, uh, that what if the Ark of the Covenant uh, wasn't so much a holy box of divine wrath, it was more just a giant battery?
1: This was – I remember it had some of the weirdest stuff we've ever read proposed by Nikola Tesla. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. Anyway, we hope you enjoy. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them,
0: and they died before the Lord. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, or he will die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat." Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And
1: I'm Joe McCormick. And we're back for Arc 2, Electric Boogaloo, our (laughs) second exploration of a bunch of weird sort of bronze punk takes on the stories
0: of the Ark of the Covenant from the Hebrew Bible right it's, it's kind of perfect because uh, this is a kind of a, this is kind of Hanukkah uh, content for stuff to blow your mind oh I yeah. didn't think about the timing yeah we're publishing these episodes the week of uh, Hanukkah almost entirely by mis- by, uh, by accident uh, but but a pleasant accident I would say so last time we talked
1: about the stories about say the Philistine captivity of the Ark of the Covenant and the Emirates and what all that meant but there is another aspect to the Ark of God story that uh, tends to tempt people into the techno myth mythology realm, not only was the Ark said to bring vast destructions and plagues of emeralds There are also these Bible stories that tell of the Ark lashing out with blasts of power that kill offenders in an instant. Uh, And so there are a couple of examples. One is the story we just told about Aaron's two sons. We don't get a whole lot of details, but it seems like Aaron's two sons entered the presence of the Ark with some kind of strange fire. Essentially, it sounds like they were not doing the rituals of the tabernacle as they had been commanded. They were doing something incorrect.
0: Fun fact, I, uh, I actually traveled home and uh, attended a Sunday school class at my mom's church. Uh, recently, mm-hmm. and, and this was the, the passage they were discussing. Really? Yeah.
1: Well, in the last episode, I thought we were talking about how uh, they almost never bring these stories up
0: in Sunday school, oh, at least when we were kids. And I saw a great example of why, because yeah. it's it's kind of difficult for folks to have a, like a casual, real-life-oriented uh, uh, conversation about a passage like this, about the strange fire of the Lord, which apparently is sometimes translated as alien fire. Yeah, alien fire. They brought alien fire and the censers before the Lord,
1: and the Lord did not like it and he lashed out and struck them dead yeah uh, consumed them with fire from the mercy seat. Now, before we get into the, the bronze punk discussions today, we should tell at least one more story of this kind. How about the story of Uzzah? So remember how the Ark was taken to the land of the Philistines. That's one of the stories in the Bible about it. The, the Philistines, uh, there's a battle and the Philistines take the Ark and they they put it in the Temple of Dagon until the Ark messes them up and it topples the statue of the god Dagon and uh, eventually the Philistines repenteth and the Israelites get the ark back. And so when the Israelites under King David are, they're bringing the ark back to their land, uh, we get to this passage. Quote, They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fur wood, with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon— Uzzah reached out toward the Ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for this irreverence, and he died there by the Ark of God. And then there's a story that apparently this place comes to be named, uh, what roughly translates to the breakthrough of Uzzah or the bursting out
0: at Uzzah. As we discussed uh, at length in the last episode, uh, if you look at any of these stories of the Ark of the Covenant or if you look at, of course, the, the, uh, the classic film Raiders of the Lost Ark, mm-hmm. you see great depictions of this general fact that the Ark of the Covenant is considered a dangerous Item in the stories about it. It is it is a thing that that manifests the presence and the voice of God, and uh, and therefore there are a lot of dangers associated with misuse, um, even even touching
1: it. Well, even even well-meaning touching. Mm-hmm. Like the idea here is that Uzzah wasn't trying to do you know a blasphemy to the Ark. He just reached out to keep it from falling over because the oxen were getting all tipped around, and so the Ark might have fallen on the ground. He reached out to steady it, and that was enough that God. Him struck dead. So, anyway, I, I think, as with the arc stories that we discussed last time, the most fruitful way of understanding these stories is that they are legendary narratives, not based on actual events, but rather to communicate values by telling a story. And in this case, I think one of the values that's uh, primary here is that the commands of the Lord are to be taken very seriously and that even deviating from God's commands in an accidental or well-meaning way can be met with extremely harsh consequences. Like Aaron's sons, they screw up the rites of the tabernacle by offering alien fire. They burn something in the censer in a way they weren't supposed to. And they get burned up themselves. Uza touches the ark, even meaning well, just to prevent it from falling over, and he gets blasted dead. I think the lesson is pretty clear,
0: right? Yeah, it's like it's a basic Dungeons and Dragons lesson as well. If there is a a high level magical item in your presence. Mm -hmm. Don't touch it. Don't 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 do anything until you've at least cast a few uh, you know uh, provisional spells just to see what's happening. Right. It's be very careful with the commands of God. Do mm-hmm. do everything you're told.
1: But in the last episode, we discussed the concept of this historical hermeneutic we were calling Bronze Punk, mm-hmm. the desire to uh, for of modern interpreters with a little knowledge about science and technology under their belt to look back at legends like this, assume that maybe they're based on some. Some kind of actual event, whether directly or in some exaggerated form, and instead of assuming a magical explanation for the event behind the story, postulates some kind of lost world of advanced technology hidden in the dust storms of history.
0: Which again is, of, of course, risky because this is the place where history and mythology can converge. Right. So it's difficult to really lean too heavily on anything that is described in these stories. But at the same time, we can't help but do it, right? We, yeah. the, the great example from the last episode was was looking at the uh, the, the plague of mice and uh, and tumors or emeralds and trying to figure out, well, is this bubonic plague? Is that what is that what's being described here? That's one of
1: the ways in which uh, this the Bronze Punk hermeneutic, while. Not usually a a good method of explaining the origins of these legendary tales and myths does open up some interesting things to consider about the ancient world. Like one of the things we talked about in the last episode was, okay— it probably does not make sense to say that the legends of the Ark are caused by it actually being some ancient bioweapon. Mm-hmm. But could there have been bioweapons in the ancient world? Was there germ warfare before people had a germ theory of dis- of disease? And we decided, you know, it does seem like it's possible that that happened. And there's even some evidence of specific cases where it looks like it happened, maybe
0: not in this case. And for our purposes here on the show, it's also just a great excuse to talk about some of these things. At the end of the episode, uh, and at the end of this episode as well, we're probably going to say, you know, I don't think we should really um, put a lot of, of faith in this particular idea, but it does force us to ask questions about uh, about uh, the, the inner organs of the world in ancient times, mm-hmm. uh, applying what we know about science today and sort of uh, unwrapping it through an analysis of the past.
1: Well, there's an interesting question that's going to come out of today's episode about what what causes major breakthroughs in the progress of science and history? So we'll get back to that toward the end of the episode. So last time we talked about the idea, could it have been a weapon of germ warfare? That's unlikely, but it's fun to consider. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about the pretty much impossible idea that it was a bearer of some sort of radiation hazard. I know right. this has been popular with people like Eric Von Daniken, and uh, I don't know about him specifically, but some of those ancient aliens
0: people. Yeah, any time where you're like, oh, there's some sort of, of of crazy piece of technology. It's a nuclear
1: reactor yeah. or something. Uh, And then we, of course, talked about the psychology of artifacts like the Ark being a focal point for worship and how Mm -hmm. that affects the altered states of consciousness, the mind and so forth. Uh, But today we wanted to explore another very strange bronze punk rabbit trail that many, many authors have taken over the years to explain stories like Aaron's two sons and the story of Uzzah, uh, these people who are struck dead in the presence of the Ark.
0: And that is the idea of the electric Ark. Yes. Uh, th- this, is, this is a pretty fabulous notion because it doesn't really – it doesn't depend on aliens. It doesn't depend on any uh, um, you know, uh, alternative view of the evolution of consciousness or anything. It basically just depends – it basically asks questions about like what were the – what was the, the, the knowledge of electricity at the time and what were the uh, capabilities, the material capabilities in many cases to construct uh, a primitive device. I would like to read with some abridgments from an article
1: published in the Chicago Daily Tribune, March 5th, 1933, by the Reverend John Evans called, Scientist Says Sacred Box Was a Condenser. Robert, will you uh, help me read some sections from this? Certainly. Uh, Would you like to take the beginning here?
0: I shall. It was a charge of some 10,000 volts of static electricity and not the wrath of God that killed Uzzah when he touched the Ark of the Covenant. Such, at least, is the scientific conjecture of Dean Frederick Rogers of the Department of Engineering at Lewis Institute of Technology concerning the mysterious powers of the Ark, which was not only an object of reverence to the Israelites, but also a troublesome possession. (laughs)
1: Right. So the article then goes on to tell the story of Uza. as we told before. The Ark goes unsteady. Oxen are about to knock it over. He touches it. He gets struck dead. Uh, and Evans writes, quote, Professor Rogers made a study of the construction of the Ark and discovered its design called for a perfectly constructed simple electric condenser or Leiden jar. And then the article also goes on to tell the story of the construction of the Ark of the Covenant. We talked about that in the last episode, but basically the design specifications are. It's a big wooden box with gold on the inside and the outside. Not just any wood. It's shittim wood, right? Yeah, it's uh, which I believe is supposed to be the acacia tree. A- yeah. Acacia wood, uh, they called it shittim wood, and it's got gold on the inside, gold on the outside, and then these gold uh, representative figures of cherubim on the top. So uh, going back to the article, the scientific interest in the construction pointed out by Professor Rogers was that the acacia wood box, about 40 inches long and slightly less than 30 inches in width and depth, not only was lined with gold leaf on the inside but overlaid with the same metal without – this, according to Professor Rogers, is the first step that any modern boy with a flair for electrical experimentation will take to create a Leiden jar,
0: and girls, don't be discouraged there. You can create Leiden jars, too. Also, I, I don't. I never created a, a Leiden jar. I did the, the no. potato battery, and that's about as far as I went towards creating the arc. I never even made a potato battery. Oh, but <laughs>
1: I should also say, boys and girls alike, if you are actually constructing a Leiden jar, do some with, uh, with proper safety precautions and adult supervision, because they can't Can actually be dangerous depending on their capacity. But uh, anyway, moving on. Except that in a Leiden jar, a glass receptacle is coated on the inside and the outside with tin foil instead of gold. Then, with the aid of a rod and a small knob at the top and a short chain at the bottom, which is inserted through the cork so that the chain may make contact with the bottom of the jar, a young experimenter is ready to collect small charges of bottled lightning. Robert, would you like to take over in the section subtitled A Condenser of Electricity?
0: But the Ark of the Covenant was a much larger condenser and thought by Professor Rogers to have been capable of collecting death dealing charges. The divine directions called for the creation of two cherubim of pure gold to be placed on a gold slab or mercy seat atop the Ark. These cherubim, Professor Rogers explained, what he believes to have been the positive pole of the circuit, similar to the knob on the top of the lighted jar. When he was
1: asked how the static charge of electricity got into the arc, Professor Rogers admitted that there was very little accepted authority among scientists concerning the action and control of atmospheric electricity. He explained, however, that it is known among physicists that a difference of potential exists between the earth and the air, which may be collected in electrical charges under certain favorable conditions. The design of the arc, at least as described in Exodus, undoubtedly. I love the certainty <laughs> of people writing about these kinds of kind of harebrained interpretations. Yeah,
0: clearly there's no room for, uh, for discussion here. That's what it was. Yeah. So uh, the article goes on to state that Rogers
1: believes the ark could have been electrically charged by air currents created by smoke from the burning of incense and sacrifices, hmm. which the Bible says often happened close to the ark. He also says this could charge the light and ark enough to allow it to deal fatal bolts of electricity. And he cites a Hebrew commentary tradition that states that, quote, the wings of the golden cherubim not only emitted fire, but also an aura known among electrophobic as brush glow. The fire emitted by the cherubim could have been well-known electrical arc resulting from overcharge. Professor Rogers believes that a number of accounts of destruction attributed by the scriptures to the ark might be explained as being results of purely natural phenomena. And he he gives some examples the, like we talked about last time, the destruction of the Philistine idol of Dagon, quote, a divinity supposed to be half fish and half man. And just a side note, uh, apparently that association of the Canaanite god Dagon with fish. I think that is supposed to be exonymic in origin, uh, meaning that the the ancient Hebrews related the name of this god to the Hebrew word for fish. The original Philistine Dagon appears to be more likely some kind of grain and fertility god. Sorry, Lovecraft
0: fans. Oh, yeah, that is kind of a disappointment because Dagon, of course, is a part of the, the Lovecraft uh, mythos. And, uh, and, and then it's one of those cool gods where you read about it there, then you read about it in the Bible. And if you yeah. – like I was, if you were a uh, you know high schooler who, was, who suddenly discovered Lovecraft and mm-hmm. then found uh, one of these deities in the Bible as well, it was a pretty awesome moment. Oh, I can't help but think
1: of the creatures of the
0: sea as the children of Dagon. I, mm-hmm.
1: I, I'm always going to go there even knowing what I know now, that they, he probably wasn't actually a fish god.
0: Right. But at the same time, we do have a lot of, we've discussed some uh, tremendous uh, ancient fish gods on the show before. Right. Uh, but anyway, so the, they tell the story in the article of this Philistine
1: idol repeatedly getting knocked over or off of the ark and roger says quote if the idol had been constructed out of some poorer metal in combination with wood an electrical charge far below the capacity of the ark would have been enough to have accomplished the destruction so i think they're saying that the ark could have knocked over the the idol just by discharging electricity i'm I'm not sure about that, but OK.
0: Yeah, I, I'm going to try to include some art that I found uh, on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com because there are a number of wonderful depictions of like the glowing ark and a toppled uh, uh, st- a statue of the deity Dagon, sometimes with a fish fishtail uh, that, of course, is now broken because it fell over. And uh, and of course, this is uh this kind of thing was um, was also referenced in *Rages of the Lost Ark*. Again, mm-hmm. that scene where the Ark of the Covenant burns through the swastika yeah. on the crate that contains it. Yeah,
1: like uh, like destroying another false idol. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so to continue, and we're getting close to the end of this article, but there's some other good stuff here. So Evans talks about how all these kinds of miracles could be attributed to electricity, and he talks about the tendency of people to attribute you know, uh, processes they don't understand to divine intervention. And then he says, thus, if Moses accidentally stumbled upon the principle of the jar, the device would instantly be accepted as the conveying medium of divine favor or disfavor. Sounds, again, like a little bit too much certainty in this interpretation here. But uh, the author tells a bunch more stories of the Ark and then also points out that the Ark of the Covenant was not the only Ark, given sacred significance in the ancient world, and he discusses ancient Egyptian arcs, speculating that Moses could have learned about the creation of electrical arcs uh, from the Egyptians when he was growing up in the Pharaoh's court. Again, that's that's a nice story, but I think once again the problem is just that it's taking the biblical source at face value, and what's more likely is that the biography of Moses is a legend. But uh, but yeah, there, there he does point out that there are other arc-like things in other cultures around the ancient. Near East and 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 the uh, Egyptian
0: arcs are a great example, right? But then again, we have to come back to perhaps the simpler explanation that an arc-like thing is a box, yeah, and and therefore, yes, the technology of box making was very much <laughs> uh, in effect at
1: the time, right? Uh, and so, finally, Robert, do you want to read this very last uh, paragraph
0: here? Certainly. While no historian would engage in such speculation, yet it is the right of any man to fancy that it was in Egypt that the properties of the gold-coated box were discovered by some hapless craftsman. He paid for his discovery with his life, but gave his kinsmen a home for a new and powerful god. Okay, so they've
1: got a theory here. Some Egyptian craftsman accidentally discovered how to build a Leiden jar by building boxes and covering them with gold, and then that... Information was transmitted to Moses and then Moses carried the secret of how to build a jar, and that became the Ark of the Covenant and thus it gives us all these stories of like people touching it and getting struck dead. Now, I think it would be ridiculous to say that if the Ark actually existed, we're assuming something like it may have, Mm -hmm. Uh, if it existed, that it was best explained in these terms. Uh, But while I don't think we need to resort to this to explain the Ark legend, I don't find it implausible at all that someone in the ancient world and someone in the ancient Mediterranean could have at some point accidentally created a capacitor, which is what a Leiden Jar is, and that it could have injured or killed people. And that is a really interesting thing to to consider.
0: Right, because not, I mean, not only, of course, the, the accidental creation of such a thing, but then the recreation of such a thing and the utilization of such a thing, uh, either as a, essentially a tool of divination, mm-hmm. like what's going to happen when I touch it, uh, like a, a, a fatal shock is a no, not dying is a yes, <laughs> you know, that, that sort of thing, Which which a lot of ancient practices of religion and even modern practices of religion really boil down to that, give me something to provide an answer mm-hmm. for some uh, question i have or or provide some sort of a random answer to something uh, that i am incapable of generating my own random answer to
1: yeah and again i think it's not hard to believe that it, it, that someone could have accidentally discovered how to build something like this mm-hmm. uh, again like the discovery of the actual leiden jar was also accidental somewhat and frightening somewhat maybe we should explore that after a break <laughs> All right, we're back. Okay, so we mentioned uh, before the break that in fact, the discovery of the Leiden jar itself. We've got these people saying that the Ark of the Covenant was some kind of ancient Leiden jar, some kind of capacitor or condenser that would store up electric charge and then discharge it all at once, maybe killing somebody who touched it in the wrong way. Uh, so in 1745, there was this German Lutheran bishop named Ewald Georg von Kleist. I've also seen his name represented as Johann uh, Jürgen von Kleist. I don't know if those are variations on the same name or if that's a discrepancy. I don't know. But either way, whatever his middle name was, von Kleist was performing experiments with an electrostatic generator. At the time, this would have been something like the spinning globe generator of Francis Hauxby or of Benjamin Franklin, which was essentially like a glass sphere that you would rotate rapidly against a wool cloth by turning a crank, charging the sphere by friction, essentially gathering up electrons from the cloth. Now, once this principle had been demonstrated, uh, uh, lots of people were messing around with them. and Von Kleist had a glass medicine bottle that was filled with liquid, it was water or alcohol, with a cork top and a nail driven through the cork, poking down into the liquid inside. And while he was doing his experiments, von Kleist held the outside of the bottle with his hand. And he touched the nail to the generator that was, you know, the the friction generator. And after charging the inside of the bottle, he found that when he held the bottle with one hand and touched the nail with his other hand, he received a shock. Why? Because he just used his body to complete a circuit. And thus the spark, the shock. Yes, uh, and then there's another guy uh, pr- around the same time, Peter van Mussenbroek of Leiden Holland, who discovered the same principle the following year, which is where the Leiden jar gets its name. It's, uh, it's spelled like L-E-Y-D-E-N, but I think uh, Leiden Holland is with like an E-I. So I'm yeah, saying I, I, Leiden. I've heard people say Leiden. Yeah, too. I think I read it in my mind as Leiden for years and years. I may have said Leiden in the past, whichever way it is. It, it, I'm going to be saying Leiden. If you don't like that, you can email and complain. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, von Musschenbroek was able to charge up a glass jar full of water with a metal rod plunging inside it. And he also discovered that when you touch the rod while holding the outside of the jar, you got this terrific shock. So – the principle here is the one of, of creating this uh, electrical potential difference, you know, by charging it up in this way and having the insulator of the glass there between the inside and the outside, you're creating this difference potential where one side is positively charged, one side is negatively charged, and they desperately want to equalize. And whenever you complete that circuit – circuit, they will equalize. And if you are the thing that completes that circuit, that equalization can be unpleasant for you. It can be bad for your body.
0: Now, let's talk about how unpleasant, because uh, we, we experience static shock all the time, especially during the winter in our mm-hmm. modern world. My son and I, when we go to a playground, we always do this thing called electric high five, uh-huh. uh, where if there's, if there's, you know, static electricity is generated when he goes down the slide. Yep, uh, because, because of friction. The mass, because of friction. Uh, I wait at the bottom, and he gives me a high five. And sometimes there is an alarming shock to it, like it's it's uh-huh. it's pretty intense, but it's fun, right? Uh, it's not something that I would attribute to the um, uh, to the wrath of a of a of an ancient god when he goes down
1: that slide. He's becoming an electrostatic generator, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you you are the uh, you are the ground terminal. <laughs> so yeah, the the question though is, could that high five be dangerous or fatal? Mm. Uh, you bet, actually. Well, not on the slide, but given given how much charge you could store up under various circumstances, uh, yeah, it's entirely possible. Van Mussenbroek reportedly said, I would not take a second shock for the kingdom of France. <laughs> and Benjamin Franklin, we've talked about this on the show before, but the, the ye old American hero, Benjamin Franklin, hanging out in Philadelphia, loved experimenting with Leiden jars. He began to get uh, more power by chaining them together in a circuit so that their combined capacity could be discharged all at the same time, giving even more power power and Franklin kind of turned into a mad scientist in this regard he became temporarily enthralled with the idea of using the powerful shock from this parade of jars to deal uh, uh, lethal shocks to animals and he compared this row of Leiden jars all strung together to a battery of cannons or military artillery giving us the term we still use today for a slightly different form of storage for electrical potential the battery is like a you know it's a battery oh. In the 1740s, Benjamin Franklin told a friend of his that he had figured out that the discharge of two Leiden jars was, quote, sufficient to kill common hens outright. <laughs> he even said that since the electric shock killed so quickly, it might become a more humane way of slaughter for butchers so that the birds that they butchered suffered less. And he proposed that a butcher could kill a turkey by stringing together six Leiden jars into a battery and then tied the chain, which was one terminal, around around the turkey's legs and then lift the turkey so that its head touched the other terminal. Uh, whether or not this was actually more humane uh, as a method of butchery, it, it probably wasn't the safest method for butchers to use because when Franklin himself was trying to perform experiments like this, like there was a time he wanted to have a turkey barbecue mm-hmm. where he was trying to kill turkeys with Leiden jars, uh, he ended up accidentally shocking himself horribly and he was like knocked back and he felt bruised for days. Uh, he And he explicitly said that he was afraid that a blow like that could easily kill a man.
0: Yeah. I mean, Benjamin Franklin here is really sounding like a man who has never observed, uh, who has never watched someone who knows what they're doing kill a chicken or a duck. Right. Because generally it is just a, 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 I've I've seen like food documentaries where you see like a loving, caring, um, a duck farmer, Mm -hmm. just, uh, you know, one second they're holding the duck and then it's like just a quick uh, twist of the wrist Uh and they've wrung its neck and it's dead. Yes uh far better than risking your own death and like burning the house down in the process
1: well and then it didn't even always work because he said so he was trying to instantly and humanely kill turkeys this way but he would like knock them unconscious and sometimes they'd come back they'd be kind of woozy <laughs> uh it, it just sounds horrible what are you doing ben <laughs> But but anyway, so eventually people figured out that there are multiple ways of constructing a Leiden jar. You can make one with a simple conductive foil on the inside and the outside of a glass jar, or you can make one with water on the inside. In the 18th century, it became common to cram the inside of the jar with gold leaf, and there are just a bunch of ways to do it. But essentially what you need is a thin layer of what's known as a dielectric, which is an insulating, non-conductive material like glass with a way of charging up the potential difference between the conductors on each side of that dielectric layer. You've got the negative charge on the inside and the positive charge on the outside. And so – and back to the idea of, of our friend, Professor Frederick Rogers, he was saying, okay, that's how the arc is working, right? You've got a dielectric, which is the wood, and then you've mm-hmm. got the gold layering, the gold plating on the inside and on the outside, and those are forming the conductive foils like in a Leiden jar. All you really need is like a way of charging up the inside and having that uh, potential difference. And it's very possible that you have a, a lethal electrostatic discharge machine capable of killing people who touch it the wrong way now our friend professor frederick rogers who he, oh i just realized he's fred rogers ah this is mr rogers oh well it's, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day for electrocution <laughs> uh, so Mr. Rogers wasn't the first person to propose that the ark was a capacitor or a Leyden jar. I actually found earlier evidence of different versions of this theory, including one from one of my favorite discourse communities of all time, late nineteenth century American spiritualism oh. You remember our our old friend uh, John Murray Spear? Oh, of course, yes. Yeah, the spiritualist, uh, agitator for the spirit land. Building that tremendous contraption that was going to—was that a radio for speaking to God? Yes, essentially. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was very complicated, his theology about that. But John Murray Spear was a spiritualist who thought he was getting messages from the spirits of the dead, telling him how to build an electromechanical messiah called the new motor, which would be a channel for the new motive power, which was God's energy poured into the universe through the lens of the sun, which would be enlightening and would cause wisdom and a a new human that would be created by essentially what this machine was, was like a coffee table with like a bunch of metal stuff on top of it.
0: Yeah, I remember looking at illustrations of this and it was no arc, that's for certain. I remember exactly
1: what you said about it, which is that you said it looked like if a coffee table mated with a Dalek.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much what it looked like. No cherubim.
1: But anyway, I I think we should explore some spiritualist bronze punk. So I wasn't able to find an original version of this article, but I want to talk about an article that's reproduced in a book by the spiritualist author Moses Hull. Uh, Hull quotes the entirety of this article, which was published sometime in the 1890s in a spiritualist periodical called The Progressive Thinker, which has a great little subtitle. It's Science Supplemented by an Exalted Morality, the Bible of the Future. (laughs) And so you've got all these strange currents in 19th century American spiritualism, which uh, as in this case often featured like a combination of belief in the existence of spirits and our ability to receive communications from them, but then also like progressive politics, often abolition of slavery, women's suffrage, that kind of thing, uh, a kind of futuristic embrace of scientific and technological progress, skepticism about some traditional doctrines of religion while uh, still embracing others, given all this kind of stuff, it's not surprising to me that spiritualist authors would be embracing an electrical theory of the arc legend. They sometimes had this sort of rationalism, supernaturalism hybrid that made them want to read the Bible as in some ways literally true and in other ways like revealing hints of technologies that we would later discover maybe through the revelations of spirits. Like remember John Murray Spears' uh, belief that he was getting messages from the association of Electrizers who are these people like Benjamin Franklin and all these oh, yeah. dead people who were giving him technological messages from beyond the grave. But anyway, let's look at this article from the progressive thinker. So the, the author of this article says, there is nothing new on the face of the earth and there is no doubt that electricity was well known to the Israelites and probably to the Phoenicians. Again, no doubt. Why, are, why is it yeah. always no doubt and certainty?
0: Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that particular question because on one hand, yes, there was some knowledge of electricity, but was it a working knowledge? I don't know if
1: we know that it was known to the Israelites.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, uh, I have to admit, I don't really know what the uh, uh, what the, the weather, weather patterns are necessarily like uh, <laughs> in the Middle, Middle East, like it, it, to what extent lightning is observed. Mm-hmm. But the observation of lightning would be one slight level of knowledge of electricity. Okay. Not necessarily, I mean, not a working knowledge. You, you can look at a, at a lightning storm, you, you'd be impressed by it and uh, have no idea what it is. Sure, given a broad definition. Okay, right.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's certainly what the the Greeks knew, which we'll get to uh, right. in a little bit. So the author explains the story of the, the construction of the ark, points out that the special type of wood that was uh, that was used to build the ark, they say, quote, uh, was this choice accidental on account of the great value of the resinous wood or was it in the choice of the best known non-conductor among the great number of various timbers? I don't know if that is correct. I, I sort of doubt that premise, but- uh, you know, who knows? Um, I was wondering, is wood a good insulator, and I looked this up. It basically depends on factors about the wood itself, such as the type of wood and the moisture content. Mm. So, of course, the author points out uh, correctly that it is said that the inside and outside of the Ark were covered in beaten gold and that this is a good conductor of electricity. It is true that gold is a good conductor of electricity. Quote, so much is certain that if Edison or Tesla had lived in those days, they could not have improved upon the choice of material and the result was a powerful Leiden jar. I think they actually could have improved on it. For instance, silver is an even better conductor
0: than gold. Also, seraphim, a higher rank of angel. Just saying they could go up from cherubim.
1: Ooh, touche. So the author uh, also claims that the ark was charged by the smoke of burnt offerings, which is the same thing Roger said. Uh, The author says that after Moses died, others improved upon the design of the electrical ark by placing it in a temple surrounded by 150-foot poles covered in gold to charge the ark with electrical storms. And then we get to my favorite part, which is that the author says that uh, he essentially implies that Aaron in the Bible stories used the
0: ark as a murder weapon. Whoa,
1: Robert, would you like to read this passage I've got here?
0: Certainly, and, uh, and we'll just pretend that we threw in the Law and Order sound effect right here. Before oh, may- I read maybe it. maybe we can do that. I don't know. We'll see. Any coroner's jury of today, if it were to sit on an inquest over the bodies of Aaron's sons, would it once bring a verdict of death by discharge of electricity? (laughs) Aaron knew this power, and to make it effective... All he had to do to deal death from this apparatus was to remove the costly camel's hair carpets, which are (laughs) almost perfect non-conductors of electricity, and make the the culprit stand on terra firma. Death would result instantly by fire breaking out and leave no wounds or burns to account for his death. That several members of revolting tribes of Israelites were thus electrocuted is also a matter of record in the Bible. Um, Oh, I wouldn't call them revolting necessarily. <laughs> that seems a little harsh. Oh, he
1: means rebellion. Oh, yes, of course. But yes, that is uh, again matter
0: of record. It is just a certainty. <laughs> what what is with this? Well, I mean, there's probably a lot to unpack there in terms. Of, I mean, we we have unpacked this to a certain extent. Uh, for instance, looking at the uh, uh, the great flood and the mm. idea of a biblical great flood and its effect on the study of geology for so long. Yeah, you know, I mean the the biblical record as it was. Uh, certainly influenced uh, even scientific uh, understanding of the world for uh, for quite a while.
1: Well, I just think it's so interesting that you've got this weird hybrid approach of looking at the Bible here where the person is saying, I'm going to question and interrogate the source of this power, but I'm going to absolutely take the story at
0: face value, except where it sort of doesn't really match what I'm saying. But Also, I'm going to take God completely out of the equation and replace it with a device, Uh but I'm also going to treat the text, this this translated text, uh, as if it is uh, a complete – uh, historical record as if it's just a security cam footage of the Ark of the Covenant.
1: Yeah, that is exactly what I was maybe uh, inarticulately trying to say. And then they end the article by saying, Franklin, the electric chair in the state of New York and the discovery of the Leiden jar itself in Leiden, Germany are all back numbers. History only repeats itself, whether recorded or not. And then here's, a, here's an even crazier one. It seems that none other than Nikola Tesla toyed with this idea as well. Oh, my. In a 1915 essay called Called the Wonder World to be Created by Electricity, Tesla wrote... The superstitious belief of the ancients, if it existed at all, can therefore not be taken as a reliable proof of their ignorance, but just how much they knew about electricity can only be conjectured. A curious fact is that the ray or torpedo fish was used by them in electrotherapy. Some old coins show twin stars or sparks, such as might be produced by a galvanic battery. The records, though scanty, are of a nature to fill us with conviction that a few initiated at least— had a deeper knowledge of amber phenomena. To mention one, Moses was undoubtedly a practical and skillful electrician far in advance of his time. Undoubtedly. <laughs> the Bible describes precisely and minutely arrangements constituting a machine in which electricity was generated by friction of air against silk curtains and stored in a box constructed like a condenser. It is very plausible to assume that the sons of Aaron were killed by a high t- discharge and that the Vestal fires of the Romans were electrical. The belt drive must have been known to engineers of that epoch and it is difficult to see how the abundant evolution of static electricity could have escaped their notice. The words of Nikola Tesla. Impressive.
0: I had no idea that he ever commented on this. Again, certainly.
1: Undoubtedly. Uh, And then more recently of course the idea of the electric arc as I think we mentioned this at the beginning. If not, you will not be surprised to learn that it seems popular with people operating operating in the ancient alien cinematic universe oh, of course uh, Eric Von Daniken claimed this while also claiming that it was as part of his whole ancient alien technology uh, thing it was, it was an alien gift motif uh, I think he said that it was like a radio somebody said that it was a nuclear reactor I know uh, Rael the, the founder of the Raelians had mm-hmm. some idea that it was a nuclear reactor or something like that
0: but to what end what good does it do to have an, a nuclear reactor and just trot it about uh, the desert I'm not
1: sure that it it does because really the whole point, what makes this subject actually interesting is that building a form of a capacitor is technically possible for the ancients without supposing any kind of alien nonsense or intervention.
0: That's true. And then ultimately the use of it as religious technology is also reasonable as well. I mean we've discussed religious technology on the show before in the way that various religions throughout history have used some sort of new technology uh, as ritual. All right, let's take one
1: more quick break, and then when we come back, we will finish up our discussion. All right, we're back. So there are all these ideas people have had, as we've been talking about, about the Ark of the Covenant as a capacitor, some form of electrical device. And while I think you don't need to go to these kind of bronze punk explanations to explain the origin of these legends, it is really interesting to think about the idea and the possibilities for electrical technology in the ancient world. Now, there isn't really much or any evidence of electrical technology in the ancient world, but there is some indication that there were the beginnings of understanding of electricity in the ancient world.
0: Yeah, I mean, there are, again, obviously aspects of our electrical world that are unmistakable, Lightning is probably the strongest, clearest, overt sign of electricity in our world. Uh, but of course, merely observing lightning is a far cry from having a decent understanding of what it is. Right. Likewise, certain circumstances can cause us to produce our own electrostatic discharge. And the ancient Greeks knew uh, about some of this. They knew about the uh, triboelectric effect, for instance. This occurs when materials become electrically charged, after they come into frictional contact with a different material. This is
1: the, the concept behind the electrostatic generator, the right. friction generator.
0: Yeah. Again, rub a balloon on someone's hair and you can witness this holy power. Uh, do the electric high five with a six-year-old and right. you can also feel the, 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 the divine spark. They may not
1: have had our level of advanced playground equipment in ancient Greece, but they probably had some stuff you could rub your butt on that would give you static discharge.
0: Yeah, because there's a whole list of the materials that can, under the right circumstances, circumstances, Circumstances produce this effect. On the positive charge side of things, uh, the list includes human skin, hair, leather, rabbit fur, cat fur, and wool. Uh, you know, think of all those electric cats uh, in ancient Egypt, right? <laughs> yeah. And then on the other side of the equation, you have wood, uh, gold, balloons, and of course, amber. We alluded to the amber effect earlier in uh, one of the quotes uh, that, that I believe you were reading. Yeah, and amber is a big a big issue here. Yeah, the ancient Greeks certainly knew about the amber wool combination. Thales of Miletus uh, reported on this. Uh, he was a mathematician and astronomer from the Greek city of Miletus in uh, uh, Ionia, which is modern day Turkey, and he lived from 624 through 546 BCE. He discovered that static electricity could be generated by rubbing fur on a piece of amber, and the Greeks noted that the, the, the this through charged amber buttons uh, as well, especially uh, because these could attract uh, you know light objects such as hair. And I think this is this is key to thinking about what ancient peoples knew about electricity is the materials they used and sort of the everyday circumstances in which they would, through continual usage, have the Uh, encounter the chance of creating that spark.
1: Yeah, and it's still there in the language we use to discuss electricity today, like the word electron and electricity comes from the Greek word electron, which means amber.
0: Yeah, so, you know, some level of understanding regarding static discharge as a property of material interaction in the ancient world, even 3000 BCE is certainly not crazy. It would seem just a natural result of, again, of working with those materials, of human invention and tool making. Exactly, yeah. So the principles of friction generators for electricity,
1: much like Franklin's and Hawkesby's friction generators, had, it had basically already been discovered in ancient times and didn't require any modern materials or technology to produce. And then you've also com- – you compound that with the rest of our discussion, which makes it seem that while these stories of the ark – uh, probably have nothing to do with this. The storage of electricity in some kind of crude capacitor could also have been managed in the ancient world via basic types of Leiden jars. You've got a you know a dielectric insulator and you've got some kind of like gold or something on either side of it. Uh, it might have even been built by accident at some point. This also doesn't require any kind of great, crazy bronze punk sci-fi. So this kind of leads us to a big question. If the ancients had pretty much all they needed to generate and store electricity, at least in the crudest sense, Mm -hmm. why didn't they harness these earlier? Why didn't this lead them to to perform the step up in in the next experiments and the next experiments like it did in, say, the 18th century uh, that that would lead to the subsequent development of electrically-based technologies in the ancient world? What if by the time of the Roman Empire, the world had electric power—
0: how different would the world be well that is at once a tantalizing question and a, a frightening question knowing yeah <laughs> knowing what inevitably occurs as humans uh, make new technological breakthroughs yeah uh, i don't know that i would have trusted the, the, the Romans with electricity. I, oh, God, no. I, I scarcely trust um, uh, any modern-day cultures with electricity.
1: Well, as Carl Sagan said, humanity has become powerful before humanity has become wise. Mm-hmm. And the, you know this is true even today. I'd say, I, I'd venture a guess, we were even less wise in the times of the Romans, <laughs> or at least the Roman Empire was less
0: wise. How many chickens would have been fried by, um, by, by, by Roman Benjamin Franklins at the time? <laughs> yeah, one can only imagine. Yeah, so
1: there must be some kind of answer to this question. Like it's not like there's some kind of magical ingredient they did not possess that would not allow them to start this chain of research to gain power over the electrical world. I have to guess that the main impediment – maybe there's something I'm not thinking of here. I'd have to think the main impediment – Is just like they didn't have the proper ecosystem of scientific investigation, like all these different people in different places doing their independent experiments and then all coming together
0: to compare notes. You know, this reminds me of a discussion that we had for our new show, our new podcast that is launching, I believe, next week, uh, Invention – uh, podcast all about inventions, where they come from, and, and uh, we were talking about the X-ray, I believe, mm-hmm. and we were talking about okay, you, you have the, the the materials and the uh, the parts that were necessary to create the X-ray, the understanding, uh, limited as it was at the time, uh, to create this machine, and yet there were a, a few decades there before somebody actually really did, before they really cracked. Uh, uh, the mystery of what was going on. And kind of like the Leiden jar, the discovery was
1: partially an accident. I mm-hmm. mean, somebody was—the uh, the discoverer of the X-ray machine was messing around with, with electrical equipment, so it wasn't like they were just like, you know, cleaning their garage and they right. discovered the X-ray machine. But they weren't setting out to discover a way to look
0: inside the body. Right, and part of it, too, was like—was also very literally, where were they looking? When they, when they were creating some sort of an effect— what, how are they trying to understand it? And so I think there might be an answer there if – and again, we're making a few different leaps here. But if – assuming for a second that the Ark of the Covenant was indeed a Leiden jar and, uh, and, the, and this was an electrostatic discharge that people were observing and experiencing – what were they observing how were they trying to observe it and what were they looking for? What answers were they looking for in playing with this technology?
1: Well, one of the things that uh, the people who are doing this kind of like pseudo history about the Ark Mm -hmm. do is they say, well, okay, clearly Aaron started using the Ark as a murder weapon and they were using it as a weapon of war or something like that. I would tend to think if it actually were the case that there was an arc and the arc was actually a Leidenger, again, I'm not at all saying I think this is likely, but just suppose Mm – I would think the most likely use for it would be a piece of religious technology. The purpose of it is to demonstrate some sort of supernatural power by letting off this discharge or whatever. It is indication that something you don't understand that is powerful and is unexplained is happening. And this gives you a kind of like peek behind the curtain of reality and you can see the powers
0: that lie beyond. And really, that would be the most powerful application of the technology at the the time. time, Because no matter what the stories are about the arc— Um, you wouldn't be able to bring down the walls of Jericho with this thing. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't be able to stop the flow of the River Jordan. Maybe you could murder your nephew. (laughs) Maybe. But that's kind of small potatoes uh, compared to uh, giving yourself some some powerful force that not only was able to help like shore up your religion but also – convince those that needed convincing that you were privy to the divine word of God through this device.
1: Well, in fact, think about the primary ways that Leiden jars were used when people first started making them. They became like a parlor game. Yeah, entertainment. Like yeah. Yes, it was entertainment. In in fact, it was almost a form of religious technology. There would be these stories of people, they'd get a bunch of Leiden jars together, or I don't know about a bunch, maybe just one. They, they'd have some kind of capacitor, mm-hmm. and then they would get a bunch of monks to hold hands, and then they'd shock them all at the same time in a chain so that they all mm-hmm. felt it at once. It was almost like a strange ritual.
0: Yeah, you get into the the, the power of the performance, right? And yeah. it's, it's, it's a part of religion. It's a part of entertainment. It's just a part of the human experience. It,
1: It was primarily useful not for work it would do in the material world, but for the work it would do on the minds of the people taking part in observing. It was performative, yeah.
0: All right, so there you have it. Um, I hope everyone leaves these episodes maybe a little more interested and a little more enthralled by the arc. Yeah. Uh, you know, because ultimately we can't explain what it actually was if it was a thing. I mean, it's mm. just – again, this is a place where history and mythology uh,
1: converge. Yeah, but I do love it as a jumping off point. It's almost like it's the way station to all these strange uh, – bronze-punk planets you can visit that, yeah. that are revealing once you
0: start thinking about them. Indeed, and we would love to hear everyone else's thoughts on, on the Ark. Yeah, People who learned about it from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, first of all, and, and from people who uh, learned about it in uh, you know, uh, uh, their history class or their Bible class or uh, their whatever kind of religious study they were involved in. Um, perhaps you have a particular favorite theory. Perhaps you have your own brand new theory that we haven't thought of. Uh, maybe it contained a giant squid. I don't know. I will leave it to you to uh, provide us with those new theories. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, be sure to check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is The Mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the podcast. That's also where you'll find links out to our various accounts. It's also where you'll find a little tab at the top of the page for our merchandise store, our Tea Public Store, where you can buy uh, cool bits of merchandise, shirt stickers, you name it, that have our logo or related designs on there. And it's a really cool way to support the show, and if you want to support the show in a way- Way that doesn't cost you any money, just simply rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so.
1: Big thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, or just to say hi, send us greetings, send us uh, you know uh, a little bit about yourself, how you found out about the show, where you listen from, all that kind of stuff, you can email us at blowthemind at